Welcome to the... Fuck, I almost forgot the title. <laughs> Welcome to the Bailey, the show that is the assault weapons ban of the podcast world. I'm your host, Yassine Masoud, and I'm joined today by CRC32, McMuster, 93, and Peter Floatner. And please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm CRC32. I'm a former intellectual property attorney who then st- did a stint as a First Amendment attorney, and now I uh, uh, run hotels. I'm 93, a mid-20s programmer with vaguely libertarian sympathies, a vaguely autistic outlook, and basically I'm the median SSC poster. (laughs) Perfect. Peter Flotner? Hi, I'm Peter Flotner. I'm a 26-year-old mathematician from Germany. Politically, I lean more green. Also, um, after studying mathematics for seven years, I hate it, and now I want to become a film scholar. I'm Nick Muster. I am a 20-something libertarian who doesn't want to be called a libertarian. I uh, studied biology and have since gone into the construction industry when I realized I couldn't do anything with biology. All right, cool. So our topics today, our topic today is going to be the signaling theory of education, most uh, prominently promulgated by uh, Brian Kaplan, and uh, as well as any counter arguments that are uh, raised against uh, his uh, position. We're also going to cover... Uh, Corporal punishment with a focus on Singapore's caning and uh, whether we should replace the current incarceration uh, uh, system with uh, corporal punishment. And we're also going to cover Cloudflare and uh, the issue of free free speech. So let's uh, start with the signaling theory of education. I can start if anyone's interested with my own mini story of Brian Kaplan, and then we can dive into substantive discussion. Sure, let's start there. So I know Brian Kaplan personally. He's he's an extremely quirky person. Uh, if you ever see any of his uh, interviews, and one of his quirks is that he fucking loves punk rock. Alongside the uh, opera music, punk rock is his favorite uh, genre of music. Don't ask me how the two are related. One of his favorite bands was called Tsunami Bomb, and the lead singer uh, started another band called Action Design, and they were playing their debut show in uh, Washington D.C in a relatively sparse area of the city. Brian Kaplan desperately wanted to go, but he never went to this area of the city. So he knew that I went, that I was into music and was familiar with Washington, D.C. So he asked if I could come along with him. Brian Kaplan and I went to, uh, to the venue, but he insisted on going there three hours early because he was terrified that it was going to sell out. This is a pretty small venue. It's basically a bar and they had like a small... Uh, stage where bands could occasionally be playing. So we arrived at the venue about three hours early and we asked to buy tickets and everyone there was just looking at us like we're crazy. And they said, no, we're not selling tickets in advance. You just pay at the door because it was the expectation that this wasn't going to be a very popular show. Brian Kaplan was uh, agonizing over the system. And he at one point said, I wish the tickets were $60 instead of $8 so that I can guarantee that I I can be in attendance because he Look at looked at it from a, a very literal economics point of view. So while waiting for the show to actually start, uh, Kaplan and I went to a, a mini golf <laughs> bar down the street, and we played mini golf for about three hours. And uh, he took pictures throughout the whole mini golf tournament, and it was kind of quite a lot of fun. Uh, what he was wearing that day was this uh, white t-shirt with the tick logo from the comic book emblazoned on the front. And it was about two sizes too big for him. And he also carried the a seat cushion everywhere he went because he found the prospect of sitting on solid surfaces to be too painful to consider. 
And I'm kind of riffing on him, but I generally respect the guy. I just find him to be really funny. And I also admire how little of a fuck he gives about his uh, outward appearance or how he presents himself to the world for the most part. So we finally get to the venue and we go through the, we watch the opening band and then we watch action design and brought and Kaplan is just like fucking rocking out. He's really, really into this uh, band. He's uh, bopping his head. He's like semi into the mosh pit and just having the time of his life. And when, when the show was over, he turned to me, he said, that was the greatest show I've ever seen, even better than bad religion and just was completely happy with it. And keep in mind that the the venue was really small and there were maybe eight people in attendance and most of them were probably the other bands that were playing. So it wasn't like a very crowded uh, place. And this was probably Kaplan's first uh, music venue that happened in a a bar instead of like a stadium or uh, a convention center or anything like that. Afterwards, because of the how intimate the place was, Kaplan went up to uh, the lead singer of Action Design and asked for a picture. And she probably must have been kind of surprised to see this middle-aged guy in a white t-shirt asking to take a picture with her. But I took a picture of them. She looked like she was slightly uncomfortable and he was just beaming and had uh, a wide grin on his face and with the tick logo on his uh, t-shirt. And I took a picture of him and he had a good time. So that's my, that's my Kaplan story. I was really hoping it was going to end with you getting locked out of the bar because it was full. <laughs> <laughs> I can modify it maybe in the future if I retell it. Uh, so <laughs> nothing, nothing really. No, uh, there's no lesson to be learned here. It's a vertical slice of Brian Kaplan's zaniness, though. Yeah, Kaplan is just a funny guy. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> also, he throws really good. Uh, every year he throws something called Caplicon, where he invites his friends and students over to his house and they play board games. And he really, really loves being the dungeon master for uh, role-playing games. During one of his uh, labor economics classes, one of the questions he asks is, he asks his class is to, to kind of, as a thought experiment, what is the job that you would, would do for free if you weren't paying, getting paid at all and all your needs were, uh, were met? And his answer was to be dungeon master. So that's that's how much he loves uh, pen and paper uh, role playing games. So that's that's a slice of uh, Brian Kaplan's life. Uh, we're uh, bringing him up to be today because he's the most prominent face of the signaling theory of education, uh, primarily as a result of him uh, writing a book on the topic. And I'm going to give the floor to 93, and maybe you can give us a summary of what the what Brian Kaplan's position is. Sure. So the signaling theory of education broadly states that education does not actually teach you anything. It does not make you a better person in any significant way. Rather, everyone has some innate levels of skills, which are things like intelligence, conformity, uh, work ethic, and so on. And what education mostly does is it measures those skills, and then it provides you with a certificate indicating how smart, how conscientious, etc. you are. And then your employers will obviously prefer to hire the smarter, more conscientious people, which is why people with more education get better paying jobs, even though education doesn't teach them, theory contends. So one of the supporting uh, arguments for uh, the signaling theory of education is that a lot of uh, topics that 
pretty much everyone learns in uh, college have little to nothing to do with their actual day-to-day job. So the examples that Kaplan likes to cite are philosophy, the specific um, arguments and works of Kant or Aristotle or Plato or anything that is unrelated and potentially vestigial uh, and has nothing, doesn't do anything to increase someone's uh, human capital capacity. The response to that argument from the defenders of human capital, which human capital is the alternative theory to signaling, which states that education does teach you and it builds human capital in the form of skills. So the human capital defense is that, yes, those aren't useful in your day to day job, but by taking those philosophy courses, you are learning how to learn. And that is somehow enhancing your ability in other fields. And whether or not learning how to learn is a real thing is somewhat hotly contested. And like that's just going into the whole field of education, which makes things much more complicated. Kaplan's take is that learning how to learn is basically not real. I am sympathetic to this take, but it's it is a deep field to get into. And to clarify, uh, Kaplan's position is not that human capital does not exist. It's that it's uh, extremely limited. So he's willing to um, uh, seed the ground on almost all primary level educations in the form of uh, learning to read and write and uh, basic arithmetics. But once you uh, get further up along the chain, there's more and more irrelevancy that uh, gets uh, that bleeds into it. His uh, ballpark estimate is that maybe overall 20% of what you learn is human capital and the rest is performative towards the course of uh, signaling. As a professor in uh, university, his own, uh, he argues that human capital theory applies more to him, but even by his estimate, it's about, it's around 40%. What I think is uh, interesting is the question like uh, to get a certain degree, how, um, how high or low is the threshold to actually obtain that degree because i think the problem is we we cannot really say um what what do you actually signal with a high school um degree because nearly everyone passes high school anyway so what you're talking about is uh credential inflation yeah not not really i mean like um the education system is generally built in the way that average people most are, are very likely to succeed in it in some way so like if you if you don't um finish high school you are mostly signaling that you are not even able to finish high school but on the other hand if you if you finish high school you only signal that you are a normal person so for reference one in six americans drop out of high school but that that still means that about uh 85 percent or so um finish high school if you if you assume assume that uh, finishing high school it's is somehow uh, correlated with IQ or with like the ability um, to perform in school, which could also be normal distributed, then still like the the best eighty five percent of all uh, Americans finish high school. One thing that I should clarify early regarding signaling is that a lot of discussions of it that are fairly simple will only talk about it in terms of signaling intelligence. And Kaplan is very insistent that there is a lot more to signaling than just intelligence and intelligence might not even be the biggest component of it. The 
two main things that he focuses on are that it signals conformity and it signals conscientiousness, which conscientiousness is basically the opposite of laziness. It's hardworkingness. Yeah, the theory is that if you're willing to sit through four years of bullshit, then you're a good employee from the standpoint of willing to sit through bullshit. I think it also uh, can be said to uh, sort of signal what acculturation or being a member of a class. Sophistication. There you go. You could just say assimilation, too. True. I think that might be able to be put under conformity in the sense of you are able to conform to whatever higher class culture that academia contains. But should we ask the question, can we agree on some things that you actually do learn in school? Well, the baseline is uh, something I already mentioned. So uh, reading and writing and arithmetics. You learn to read and write in elementary school, but then like in um, high school, you learn some more mathematics and you learn to... Uh, write and read texts that are a little bit more complicated and you learn like basic facts of, about the history of your country, which maybe also you should know. Well, on the basic facts angle, Kaplan makes an interesting point that people's retention of the basic facts that they notionally learn in high school is really, really bad. I'm sure you've heard the various studies about how uh, 50% of Americans can't name a congressman or I'm kind of making up numbers here. Uh, but basically, if you ask people who have graduated from high school a list of pretty basic questions that they should have learned in high school, the rate of them not knowing it is very high. I understand the basic point you're saying. You ask people who their congressman is, who the members of the Supreme Court are, uh, some very elementary level questions about how their government operates. And they tend to be highly ignorant of it and much more likely, for example, to identify Judge Judy over uh, the chief justice of uh, the Supreme Court. But maybe those questions, questions are too difficult. Maybe, maybe it's Like, I mean, if if 80% of all Americans uh, pass high school, this, this still allows um, for very many, not very intelligent people to pass high school. And I mean, for those, it's maybe a quite hard cognitive task to uh, know that Judge Judy is not on the Supreme Court. If you ask, ask a person with a, a IQ of 85 a question about current politics, it's, I find it not surprising that they, they give you a silly answer. For, for those, maybe um, they learn something in high school if they know that George Washington is kind of important or something so like that. So in your case, you would have a, a fairly low threshold for what counts as effective education. Is that a fair interpretation of your argument? Yes. Um, like if high school is in America is very, 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 uh, a very broad school that takes in nearly everybody. So, um, like the, the, if, if you try to teach everyone the same, you have, um, to start, start on a really low, um, floor because there are some people right, who cannot the, the learn term more. is lowest common denominator. So, Political facts are a bad example because the school system generally teaches you more sort of 
permanent facts than who are the current members of the Supreme Court. But here is a list of a table of adult science questions from the case against education, where they pulled American adults on these fairly basic true-false questions, and I'll just go down the list. The center of the Earth is very hot. 81% correct. Does the Earth go around the Sun or does the Sun go around the Earth? 73% correct. Electrons are smaller than atoms. 52% correct. Lasers work by focusing sound waves. 46% correct. The universe began with a huge explosion. 33% correct. It is the father's gene that decides whether the baby is a boy or a girl. 62% correct. Antibiotics kill viruses as well as bacteria. 53% correct. And remember, these are true-false questions, so people should be getting 50% even if they just answer randomly. Several of the questions got answers below 50%, like the universe one or human beings as we know them today developed from earlier species of animals, which is only 44%. Right, and those two questions have an obvious culture war uh, angle to them. Yeah, but some of them are fairly neutral, like lasers work by focusing sound waves, which less than half of people got. And there's definitely no political angle to that one. It's just people are embarrassingly underinformed. Yeah, but I think this, like, um, knowing what what a laser is, is... A fairly complicated questions. I I wouldn't ex- expect a random person on the street that is works in a rather low grade job. I wouldn't expect this person to know this. Um, this is like uh, something you know if you are interested in science and are planning to have a career that that goes at least a little bit in this direction. So, so I'm willing to accept that that's a fair point, but how would you rephrase the questions to be a more accurate representation or a more accurate metric for measuring people's retention? So I agree that it's true that most people don't need to know this, but this is something that most schools attempt to teach people. And so if people do not know this, it is because either schools failed to teach them or because they forgot at some point between going to school and now. Neither of which bodes well for the idea that school teaches you things. Wouldn't it be more interesting to ask questions that are actually connected to people's lives in some way? So there's a reading comprehension test, which also got very poor responses. It's not so much knowledge testing as follow this simple set of instructions. And people also do really quite badly on that. Well, in regards to signaling, what what do you think that uh, people get out of education, Peter? Like, um, may, maybe I, um, I tell, tell a little story. I play quite a lot of music and there is um, like a very big difference between uh, hobby musicians and professional musicians is that professional musicians can read musical notation, but they also have uh, trained ears. If you play something, they can... Um, they know what you play and can play it too. A hobby, mu- hobby musician can either do one thing or the other. They e- either can read musical notation or they um, can um, they have a trained ear. Because if you have one of those, you can learn musical pieces. You don't need the other. What your education does for professional musicians is that they are forced to learn both things. Because it's, well, if you want to be a professional musician, it's very helpful to be able to do both things. Yeah, what I, what I wanted to say, there are some things that uh, would usually be good for people to learn, 
but they don't want to learn it because they don't believe it is necessary. But indeed, it is necessary. If you go beyond high school, if you have a, a university, degree, university degree in something, this, it, this usually tells that you are able to perform the basic tasks of whatever thing you studied. If you are a computer scientist, then the degree tells us that you will know some of the normal programming languages like Java or C++ or something. This uh, signals an actual skill that you learned at university. I fall uh, on the side of signaling more than uh, human capital, but I think that it, the the reality is going to lie somewhere in the middle. Uh, like, it, it, for instance, I wouldn't have I wouldn't know calculus except for the fact that I went to college. Um, I wouldn't know uh, how to be a lawyer except for the fact that I went to law school. Yes, I know it's theoretically possible for me to have uh, you know the intestinal fortitude to teach it to myself, but let's be real that that wasn't going to happen but at the same time the signaling aspect of it is yeah i'm an i'm an attorney and everybody thinks that therefore i must know how to get them off of a, a, a traffic ticket yeah i did not touch criminal law after i absolutely had to so i i completely forgot it because i did not care but i i remember quite well the things that i cared about so i, I guess really where, where i'm what i'm trying to say is how does this go toward things like vocational school or trade school like that is definitely teaching a bunch of uh, skills that, that that are then practiced and honed that you wouldn't be able to pick up otherwise. So Kaplan is big on vocational school and his plan, his big proposal from the case against education is that we should cut all government funding for education, possibly only past like the basic years where you use literacy and numeracy and that we should have more vocational schools. But anyway, I now have in front of me the table of reading comprehension questions that people do embarrassingly badly on, and I will read you some of the tasks. So under qualitative tasks, you qualify as proficient if you can calculate an employee's share of health insurance costs for a year using a table that shows the employee's monthly cost based on income and family size. About 15% of people are capable of that. For intermediate level, you have to calculate the total cost of ordering office supplies using a page from an office supplies catalog and an order form. 45% of people are capable of that. Calculate the cost of a sandwich and salad using prices from a menu. About 80% are capable of that. For basic level on document reading, you have to find a table in an almanac with information on a specified topic. And 15% of people fail that. For intermediate level, you have to find the time a television program ends using a newspaper television schedule that lists similar programs showing at different times on different channels. And 30% of people fail that. Can I just say how funny these examples are? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're the, probably the most relevant uh, to people's day-to-day -day lives, but they, they just come off as so stereotypical. Like, hey, can you figure out which time your show is going to be on? Oh, you can't even do that. To be clear, those are sample tasks for that level of proficiency. Uh, it's not that... 30% of people necessarily fail those specific tasks, but fail tasks at those levels from a greater set of tasks. Got it. Peter, I want to ask you that you're, you said that you're unsatisfied with 
some of these questions, how would you rework them? What I would like to ask first is what what people are actually asked uh, to perform those tasks. Is this, is it a, a representative sample of all high school uh, high school uh, degree holders or who finish high school? So for the knowledge testing questions, it was a randomly selected sample of American adults. There's also the concern that when you give uh, random participants in a study a task and don't compensate them, their uh, success is much, much lower because they just don't give a shit. Yeah. So it was random American adults for those reading comprehension tests as well. But you can see that the college graduates, because it breaks it down by education as well, only 2% of college graduates failed at the basic level tasks. That suggests that at least among college grads, there is not a motivation problem, because if there were, they would presumably be flunking more of the basic tasks. That makes sense. Yeah, but I, I mean, if, you, if, um, if it's a general sample of the population... And you um, you ask them to uh, perform tasks like read a menu and calculate how much um, some things would cost. Um, this has at least some characteristics of an intelligence test. So it's it's not surprising that uh, we can find 15% of the participants who fail such tasks. Okay, so Peter, if you were to design these questions, how would you do them? I, th I think the problem with the study is that they ask questions that uh, general have a rather high intelligence component, especially, especially for the people who are not very intelligent. It's very, very hard to read a, test, a text and then extract some information out of it and perform, perform math. But what instead we should be asking, if we have some people, either they go through high school or they don't. Um, how much does it change? How much do they know? So you're asking for like a, basically a controlled trial. Yeah, like an A-B test or whatever. There's going to be a lot of problems with doing a controlled trial over someone's lifetime education system. Actually, there have <laughs> been natural experiments because obviously you can't just not send someone to school for a year because there, people have to go to school. It's literally required by law. But when the American South was desegregating, several schools shut down in protest rather than have black children sent to them. And this created a natural experiment in which some kids essentially selected at random were subjected to one less year of school than all the others. And from this, we can observe how much IQ you actually gain from attending a year of school. And the result is something like four or five points per year of education, which is absolutely enormous. And I think almost no one believes that that is sort of four or five entirely real points of IQ. Uh, Kaplan's response to that is, if you really believed that, you would be throwing 10 times as much money into education because those gains are enormous. Mostly what he thinks is happening is a degree of teaching to the test. Do you, do you think there could be an alternative uh, explanation here in that uh, uh, the districts that to uh, close down instead of teach uh, were more racist and hence just stupider <laughs> to begin with. Sorry. I that, that was I the first to, thing I, I thought there. of too. There's a selection uh, effect when it comes to which districts choose to shut down over something like that. 
Yeah, and I, I, um, but back to back to the uh, actual thing. Um, a couple, a little bit ago, we were talking about how monetary uh, compensation is actually an important aspect of this. I would love to see similar experiment with no compensation, uh, compensation, and then performance-based compensation and compare those three groups. And my, my statement regarding compensation is a minor one, given that you still see disparate outcomes when it comes to college graduates and high school graduates, as 93 pointed out. Although it's, it's worth noting that if college graduates are both smarter and more conscientious, it's possible that college graduates just are intrinsically motivated while high school dropouts would require motivation in order to perform a basic task that they're perfectly capable of doing. Selection effect. So I still have a burning question. Peter, if you were to create questions to ascertain the effectiveness of an education system, what would it be? Well, you should uh, look at what the, does the education system actually teach, actually teach, like what do you learn? they learn in mathematics? What do you le they learn in history? And then you have to uh, ask exactly questions that they would have been asked in school some years later. Okay, well, you can do me right now. I learned calculus. I don't remember any of it. Uh, Kaplan's book touches on a bit of that, where you do tests that are basically check someone's knowledge of statistics or of physics. And then that year they take a course on that subject in university. And then after the course, you give them some related questions and they find that they will ask people a sports probability question and they find that as a cynic would expect people relatively small percentage of people gain the ability to answer questions that they previously couldn't it's in the ballpark of 20% in the sense of like if you take a statistics class then only 20% of students who will gain the ability to answer these sports-themed statistics questions that they previously couldn't answer, even though theoretically they should be able to, given that that is the kind of material they learn in the test. So is it Kaplan's idea that we should select for that 20% to be the people who are educated or just throw it out entirely? He doesn't want to like burn down the universities, but he wants to end government funding of them because his thing is that because signaling is not actually productive, it's just testing people's intrinsic merit, then it leads to arms race is in the same way as the tulip subsidy principle. Which, uh, is everyone familiar with that? So this is uh, Scott Alexander's famous article on tulip subsidies uh, as applied to uh, medical education between and the comparison between the United States and Ireland. So the quick summary is that basic people give each other tulips as wedding presents, say. But it turns out that tulips are rare and therefore expensive. So... Gov they petition the government to give people a subsidy for the tulips they buy in order to help pay for the expensive cost because everyone wants tulips. The results of this are that people end up spending just more money on tulips because it's not about actually having a tulip. A tulip is not useful. The point of buying a tulip is that you're doing it to show someone that you care $50 worth of tulips. And if the government now gives everyone $50 to spend on tulips, then $50 worth of tulips no longer shows that you care very much. You have to spend $100 on tulips. And thus, it's not a useful subsidy. It just results in the government directly paying a bunch of money to tulip farmers. And Kaplan's point is 
basically the same on education, that education, if it's only signaling, allows people to say, I am smarter than that other guy who got less education, therefore you should hire me. But if we're paying people just to be able to take each other's jobs, then that's not productive. Now, there's actually an argument that signaling is productive, which I want to get into, but first we can respond to this. One thing I should clarify on Kaplan's position is that uh, he embraces a slightly strange view of it, which I find a bit strawmanny, but it's not really necessary for most of his arguments. His idea is that in the signaling model, your intelligence is intrinsic, but illegible in the sense that your employer can't really tell if you're intelligent or conscientious or whatever. And so you have to spend four years at school getting a piece of paper to prove it. Whereas in the human capital model, as he describes it, schools teach you how to do things and then your employers can immediately tell how to do things. And in Kaplan's model, you don't actually need a degree if you attended Harvard and then tore up your degree and never told anyone that you had attended Harvard, but you did tell them that, you know, calculus and all of those other things you learned, that would be equally good and you would not have wasted anything by tearing up your degree because human capital, in his view, is supposed to be perfectly legible. This is obviously somewhat silly because no one would endorse this from the side of human capital. Even if schools do teach you things, then having a degree to prove that you went to school is still useful. But most of his arguments will apply if you patch them to be talking about human capital that still requires some visibility. I was talking to Peter a little bit before we got on here, and it sounds like the German education system is quite a bit different in that nobody really pays for college. They seem to have taken the opposite tact and instead of defunding college, just fully funded it. Do you think that might be contributing to your perspective, Peter? Uh, yeah, I think it um, it contributes quite much. I, th I think what the biggest difference between uh, German universities and American universities is that the German, univers uh, German university owes nothing to its students. It's completely normal in subjects like math that 50 people, 50% uh, of all students that start math fail in the first semester and this is just okay. And like the next year, another 25% will also just fail and drop out of their subject. I think that makes sense given that the university is publicly funded. Like if you took American universities and made them entirely free to everyone, then what you should expect to get is a lot more people who probably are not cut out for university trying a year of it just to see. And the result is that the first year failure rate would go way up because suddenly you have a people, lot of people who wouldn't have gone if they had to pay for it because they knew it probably wouldn't work out now attending. But isn't that already the case for American universities that it has a high failure rate? I seem to recall that it's around 50%. Something like 50% of people cannot complete it within four years. It's 50% for the four years. Okay. What Peter was just describing was 50% for the first year alone, okay. which is so extremely high. That is much more dramatic. And, and you should also know that only um, in Germany, you can only go to university if you had to obtain Abitur, which is like the uh, diploma of the gymnasium, which is the hardest uh, secondary school. So uh, only 40 to 50% of all students uh, obtain the ability to go to university. 
So the university students are already pre-selected. Uh, so you can't have totally incompetent people applying just in case. No, you can't. Like actually, in um, uh, to obtain Abitur, you also al uh, already have to know a fair, fairly high amount of calculus, for example. So you guys actually put your you're not the 20% people on the lumberjack path even earlier on in life then. Like you put uh, you put students on the lower path, like the lower high schools earlier on in life than we do. Like we don't have lower high school, we just have high school. It's a little, little bit dependent on the states. In my state, after four years of primary school, the um, students are put into different schools uh, according to their abilities. And it's like... Um, 20% of it's it's it it has changed in the last years and I'm I'm not really sure how it is how it is now when I was uh, a kid it was like 20% went to a uh, Hauptschule which is like the lumberjack tier then uh 40% went to the Realschule which is like the um the school where you do like some vocational training or you try if you can get to university on another way And then the best 40% went to gymnasium where you would obtain the ability to go to university in the end. Yeah, because it seems like you're almost bypassing a little bit of perverse incentives Kaplan talks about just by having a stronger selective pressure to get to that point. I definitely, definitely believe that uh, Kaplan's arguments and also the idea of uh, ed education as signaling is is more dependent on uh, that you know the American system or that like that the American system actually may have more signaling than the German one. Yeah, it's entirely possible. That, well, it's probable that different countries are differently good at teaching and generating human capital. And without knowing anything else, it's 50-50 that Germany is better than America as opposed to the other way around, in which case we should expect Germany to have a smaller signaling component even before you get into the universities being structured differently in the way you describe it. Yeah, maybe it's uh, the fight is a little bit unfair. If I always think of the German system, you always think of the American system and we are talking about completely different systems then. Yeah, perhaps put, put this to a vote. Who here would rather have the American system that are, versus the German system? I'm Canadian, so I don't know either. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds like you're not jumping over the border to get into our colleges. I mean, I did well in the American system, but I do like the sort of mechanism that's in place in the German system, as Peter describes it. Canadian system, for reference, seems to be basically the American system, only things cost much less for reasons that are not totally clear. Yeah, like I'm obviously a big fan of the German system. Yeah, I've talked to, I have a friend in Germany who I talked to quite a bit. And the way she's described it, it sounds like I would have probably had a much better time in the German system just because of the, the sorting process. If you want to go up to like a higher school in America, it's a much bigger pain in the ass. Then they're usually private schools and you usually have to pay money for them. All right. So just because of time, let's move on to uh, the case, the review of the case against education. So 93U uh, provided us with a, an interesting article by Nick HK. Could you uh, summarize the main points that he has against uh, Kaplan's position? Okay. So to go over a quick list of the problems with Kaplan's case, the first is that in order to construct his estimates of exactly what percentage of education is signaling, Kaplan relies heavily on sheepskin effects, which sheepskin effects refers to the idea that your diploma is mostly about the sheepskin it's printed on, which is quite a dated thing, but 
that's what it's named for. Well, to, to really explain it is that it's the idea that the, the main benefit that you get from education happens once you graduate. If you fail or drop out 99% of the way through, you get almost no benefit. And you don't actually get almost no benefit. You get a pretty decent amount, but it is there is a noticeable jump. It, so if you were a pure human capital theorist, you might expect that, let's say that a high school graduate earns $50,000 a year and a college graduate earns $90,000 a year. You might expect that if you drop out after completing one year of college, you earn 60000 If you drop out after two years, you earn 70000 And if you drop out after three years, you earn 80000 A straight linear trend. And what sheepskin effects refers to is the fact that that's not the case. There is a large jump in salary from people who drop out in their third year to people who complete their fourth year. And if you think that what college is doing is just teaching you a certain amount every year, then that doesn't make a lot of sense. And Kaplan interprets this as evidence for signaling. And there is a story in which that's the case, but there is an alternate story in which human capital still works. And Kaplan doesn't really address this, which is a problem for his arguments. All right. So I'm generally on uh, Kaplan's side when it comes to signaling theory and the the, when I read the Nick HK's uh, article, the, probably the most compelling counter argument was definitely how uh, he addresses the sheepskin effect in that there is like a significant explanation for why the sheepskin effect would happen in that the university is sorting out the, the pro- 93, maybe you can explain it better. So the human capital friendly version of why signaling or why sheepskin effects happen is basically... Suppose that in order to pass first year, you have to have learned 60 points worth of stuff, whatever that means. We're kind of using arbitrary units. And to pass second year, you need to have learned 120 points worth of stuff. And third year is 180 points worth of stuff. And fourth year is 240 points worth of stuff. So people who pass one year and then drop out have learned between 60 and 120 points worth of stuff. And we pay them according to what we expect from people in that range. People who pass two years and drop out have learned between 120 and 180 points worth of stuff. And we pay them according to that range. But People who graduate college have learned at least 240 points with no particular upper bound. They could they might well have 500 points worth of stuff learned because they paid more attention in college or they soaked it up better. Whatever the reason, those people could have built significantly more human capital because a degree is only a signal that you have at least this much knowledge. And so in this way, you can say that the average person who graduated college, rather than having 60 points more knowledge, actually has, say, 100 points more knowledge and they will get paid a significant bump because people are paying according to what bucket they fit in maybe it's more the other way around because i mean obviously obviously you have some people like bill gates also who uh drops out of college and then simply makes uh, a big amount of money but um in my experience people who drop out of college um like they they aren't very good they are limping through college from uh the first semester and every semester there's a certain chance that they will um 
fail their exams and drop out. And uh, everyone who uh, passes college is um, better than them. So all those who um, who do drop out are mostly the really, really bad students. Yeah, that's basically the same idea framed in negative versus positive terms. But the idea is that there is a substantial difference between the students who graduate and those who drop out, which is that the people who graduate were learning a lot in every year, whereas the people who drop out were probably not learning as much in each year. So given that you drop out in third year, we assume that you had two years worth of mediocre learning. But given that you graduated, you had four years of pretty good learning. So that's worth more per year because you were better at learning. Yeah, I, I agree uh, with that 100%. And it's hard to figure out which of these stories is true about why sheepskin effects exist. But the point is that sheepskin effects are not a slam dunk proof that signaling exists. In my opinion, I think that's the strongest argument against uh, Kaplan's position. Yeah, there's one other thing that I want to address, which is kind of halfway an argument against Kaplan's position. It's not that signaling doesn't exist, but Kaplan takes a hard line stance that signaling is not productive. And it's pretty easy to show that this is not necessarily the case. Let's have a toy example where there are only two jobs in the world. You can either be a garbage man or a rocket scientist. And there are two levels of intelligence. You're either smart or dumb. So if you're dumb, then you can be a decent garbage man because it's not a very intelligence requiring job. If you're smart, you can also be a garbage man and you will be maybe a 5% gar better garbage man because you figure out some clever way to take out the garbage. Whereas if you're dumb and a rocket scientist, then you're basically useless because it's very hard to do rocket science and dumb people will not make any productive uh, accomplishments. Whereas if you're smart and a rocket scientist, you will be very productive and society will be better off for having a smart rocket scientist around. Now, in this case, suppose that signaling theory is entirely true. Schools teach nothing at all, but they allow employers to see who is smart and who is dumb. If we had no education system, we would just have to guess who's smart, who's dumb, and we'd have a lot of dumb people failing to do rocket science and a lot of smart people wasting their time picking up garbage. Whereas if we had everyone attend a couple years of school to figure out who the smart ones are versus who the dumb ones are, then we could know and sort things so that all the dumb people go into garbage again and all the smart people end up in rocket science and society is overall more productive. So I want to note in the addendum to the argument, um, the scenario that you explain, the argument remains valid, even if you assume that the education system in this scenario is 100% wasteful and does nothing but signal. So you, no one learns any human capital. Everything is performative and everything is towards the goal of signaling. It's still beneficial from the standpoint of society because you have this very useful sort of mechanism that gets implemented. Yeah. In this case, the value that the education system is providing is it's adding information about employees, which you can imagine how that would help the labor market create productive outcomes. Has uh, Kaplan addressed the benefits of information through signaling? He is very dismissive of it. Uh, there's a podcast which I should dig up so we can put in the show notes where someone asks about uh, can signaling be productive? And he 
does not think that is the case, and he doesn't really go into why, but he doesn't take it seriously. Before we wrap up, I want to uh, touch on just a couple things from we've gone over sort of the economic case, which is Kaplan thinks signaling is true because sheepskin effects. And we've gone over the fact that he thinks it's true because uh, schools teach a lot of stuff that is not directly useful. But there's one argument he includes, which I think is good, and it's not sort of a fully logically rigorous argument, but the idea is that students at university can skip class anytime they want, and they won't be directly punished for it. Like, they might fail the test because they failed to learn something, but the teacher is not giving marks for attendance. And yet, most of the time, students don't skip class. However, if the class is canceled because the teacher is sick, students are generally happy. Now, if the students are attempting to learn human capital, that doesn't make sense because they are now being deprived of some capital. But if education is signaling, then the teacher canceling the class means that everyone in the class is losing out an equal amount. And so they are not falling behind in anything because they're competing against their peers who have been equally set back. Nothing is lost and they gain an hour of free time. And this is kind of a psychologically satisfying answer of how signaling seems to be true, which I think is worth bringing up. But it's not surprising that students maybe are not rational people. Yeah, that is the obvious counter argument. And basically up to you whether you think, well, I mean, almost everyone has been a student and has had a class canceled. And do you think it was rational of you to be happy? Yeah, it's basically the argument that uh, potentially you don't look out for your long-term interests when there's a short-term gain. Yeah, like I said, it's not a slam dunk by any means, but it's interesting and I wanted to bring it up. Okay, so let's uh, wrap up signaling and uh, we're going to move on to the next topic, which is uh, corporal punishment. McMuster, do you want to lead us on this? Yeah, I can walk in on this one. All right, so probably to illustrate just how radioactive this topic is, the post on a subreddit that I inspired this conversation was made by a user who is now permabanned. Uh, someone who is openly reactionary and was banned for doing reactionary things. Do we know this person? Are you talking about the Mott? Yes. Yeah. Are you talking about pen practice? I am at, at talking about <laughs> pen practice. Yes. We don't need to be cagey. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we could probably get him on here at some point. That would be very interesting. I would love to have pen practice on. Okay, I'll, I'll have to message him at some point. I wonder if the podcast would get banned. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get popular first before we get canceled. Well, no, I mean banned by the subreddit. Oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> is that is that ban evasion? <laughs> uh, but yeah, he he's the one who brought that up in response to uh, a post about the resuming the executions for death row inmates, which is uh, something that's ongoing right now with the Trump administration. His thesis is that basically it centers around the question of would you rather take 10 lashes on your ass or would you spend a year in prison? What is anyone's everyone's answer in the room? Lashes. 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 And CRC. Might have lost him. Well, we can edit it in post, or I'll use the computer voice. And CRC. I would like to be lashed daddy. But but that's a, but that's an extreme example. I also How about how about a let's let's narrow it down. How about a month in prison? Well okay, let me preface this by saying I don't know how much lashes hurt. I can only surmise based on my general life experience. Okay. Well I'm I'm sur I will let me articulate more. The from the links posted, I the, some testimonials from people who have undergone 
what's called caning in Singapore, where this is a pretty common occurrence for minor offenses, is to get your ass slapped with a switch. Uh, it causes profuse bleeding, and you basically can't sit down for several weeks. Okay, that's bad. Yes, it is. Yeah, it has a mechanism of social shaming. You are stripped naked and your ass is switched three times. Oftentimes people pass out after the fourth. So it is incredibly unpleasant experience. Do we have a video of caning that I can include in the show notes? <laughs> I could look one up. That's probably a good idea. Those are that I think that's filed under questionable Google searches. <laughs> yeah, this is the past few days when I was doing some research for this, for I'm probably on the list, to be perfectly honest. It's, it also, as someone else remarked, it's very hard to find information on this because no one's really making this argument. So I'd like to note immediately that we all said we prefer 10 lashes to a year in prison. And on the one case, that makes an argument that it is the more humane thing to do as a punishment because it will... Like, we all prefer it, so given that we are suffering from either punishment, you are creating less suffering, and creating less suffering is generally a good thing. However, the whole point of a punishment is to create a disincentive to get the punishment. And so if we would all prefer 10 lashes to doing a year in prison, then it seems to imply that all of us would be more likely to commit crime in a system where we could take the lashes rather than the year in prison, which is obviously a reason that we shouldn't have lashes. I mean, maybe we are all masochistic um, super criminals. <laughs> True. Yeah. This, this would be the place to find them. But that's, uh, that point comes from you're assuming the spherical rational human there. Basically rewriting the criminal code. So instead of spending several months in jail, being labeled as a felon and everything that comes for, with being an ex-con, uh, many offenses that do not require you being isolated from the from the population, basically nonviolent offenses, drug crimes, property theft, things like that. Instead of locking you up and inflicting all of the life ruining effects of prison on you and the likelihood of recidivism, you uh, receive not uh, corporal punishment of some kind. So I think you're conflating two issues. You're talking about the record of having a criminal conviction versus the actual incarceration effect. You can have incarceration without a record and vice versa. I should narrow that down to just incarceration effects. You're correct. Because you have, you have lasting, you still have lasting marks that uh, indicate you are a criminal visually from a, from a lashing. That's distinct from being in prison. And it can also have beyond the record. Like there, there's nothing, if you had a system of caning, you can still have a public database saying who got caned and for what purpose. Correct. You would likely still be marked as criminal offense. Like you'd probably still have to check the box on box on your job applications. I am seeking employment in your business enterprise, but I also would like to tell you that I have been caned in the past, Daddy. So the the discussion here is really whether we should replace the system of incarceration with one of uh, corporal punishment, and the idea is that it's a lot quicker and potentially has the same deterrent effect without any of the co the long term costs of incarceration. And you also avoid the social isolation that comes with incarceration, the increased uh, association with other criminal elements that potentially increase uh, recidivism. This is another word I'm not going to be able to say. So just imagine the computer voice. 
Recidivism. Recidivism. <laughs> Recidivism. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. So that's that's the basic uh, argument between uh, the two uh, systems, right? And it's not a, it's not necessarily an argument for replacing. It's more supplementing. It's almost like decriminalization, only you're recontextualizing part of your criminal code to have it not incarcerate people, rather just smack the shit out of them. Also, I should probably, because this will be shared with family members and friends of mine at some point, that uh, I do not support this. I'm basically <laughs> steel-manning and entertain the idea. Okay, there, so are, McCross- there, are, there is evidence that would convince me that this is a good thing to do, but that evidence, as far as I could find, does not exist. It's something that's not really talked about very much. So, McMaster, why do you not support the system or the supplementation or partial uh, replacement? Why, why do I not want people beaten for crimes? Yes. Let's make that clear. Why do you not support beating people for crimes, but support incarcerating them? Well, I don't support incarceration very much either. Okay. That's the thing. I don't think there's anyone here who's happy with incarceration. Maybe not in this discussion. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Why do I prefer status quo to beating people for crimes? Okay. Well, basically just my moral intuition tells me that it's wrong and that we send people to prison to punish them. Actually physically harming people is cruel and unusual. That's the basis under which it was outlawed and outmoded in the U.S. criminal codes as a valid punishment. So you started the discussion by asking people whether they prefer lashings to incarceration. So how do you square that with your position? That's a damn good question, isn't it? (laughs) And you don't have a damn good answer? No, I don't. But I think it's relatively common. Like people think we shouldn't beat people, but also I would much rather be beaten than go to jail or prison. I think what's going on there is that, in theory, we shouldn't lock people in a small room against their will for years on end, either. Like, that sounds really bad. But basically, we all accept it because that's a normal thing that happens. And if you had a society where that wasn't the case, they would probably be horrified by the fact that we do it. And yeah, you can actually go back in time and do that because locking people in prison for extended periods of time is a relatively new convention. Usually you get thrown up in the stock, go through social shaming for a day or so, maybe at most. Uh, If you were a violent offender, then yeah, you would either be executed or locked in a guardhouse, essentially. The idea that you can reform people by locking them in a box and making them think about what they've done and be surrounded by other people going through the same thing day on, day out for years on end. Well, we can thank the Protestants for that from what I'm reading and from what Pen practice was saying he's not in the room, so he can't make the argument as well as I can. But prisons and how we think prisons are supposed to work are a newer convention. Well, to be fair, a lot of people advocating for the status quo are not saying that the a long prison sentence will reform anyone, but rather that it's necessary in order to disincentivize crime. From what I've done in research on this, people are definitely not spherical, rational humans. And one of the ways in which they are conspicuously not spherical, rational humans is that they do not respond in the expected way towards, say, doubling a prison sentence, and that it does not make them half as likely to commit a crime, even though their expected value from receiving the punishment should be approximately doubled. And even worse, raising doubling the sentence does send the signal that you are tough on crime. 
So there's a spiraling effect there. Yes, it's one of those things like how no one ever reduces the punishments on people who hurt children. Not because they think the punishments are necessarily a good amount, but rather because if you reduce them, then your opponent will run an attack ad that says this guy is soft on child predators and you will lose your election. Isn't like uh, the... The interesting question basically is how how much is there a deterrence effect by uh, punishment? That's a good question because Singapore has one ninth our violent crime rate. We are nine to ten times more have nine to ten times more violent crime in America per capita, and they use this method quite extensively. It's so difficult to make cross country comparisons for a variety yeah, of reasons. Very true. Like, Canada has also a drastically lower violent crime rate than the United States, and we have an approximately American prison system. Or you can just look within the United States and look at the different states and see a great deal of variance when it comes to crime rates. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I should not be too authoritative. I had a, a criminology course, but I am definitely outside my element in the sense. So from the thing I was talking about on how people don't respond rationally to increasing the punishment, something that they do respond to is if you increase the likelihood that they will get caught, then they will respond in the way you would expect and reduce their chances of committing crime. And it's not entirely clear why they respond to the probability rather than the length of the time. But from everything I've read, that seems to be the case, at least within the American system. Yeah. Well, think about it. Can you, is there any quantitative difference between spending one year in prison and spending one, five years in prison to you personally? Yes, there's a difference of four years. Well, well, like, in, intuitively, like, does it feel any different if you're if I didn't give you a comparison and if I gave you told came out of the blue and told you you're going to prison for a year and then we rewind time, walk in until you're going to prison for five years. Would you have a particularly different moral intuition of that? I mean, I would probably not be five times as depressed. That is correct. But I like to think that I would uh, like if you gave me a chance to say gamble on like a slot wheel where some of the outcomes are you do one year in prison and some of the outcomes are you do five years in prison. I fairly certain that I would weight them correctly in terms of the years are of equal value. Whereas criminals who do not change their rate of crime in response to punishments are essentially gambling without regard for how many years is on the wheel. So to give some data on uh, on the likelihood of getting caught, we can look at homicides. And it's, I think, uh, around 60% of homicides cannot be solved. So if you do commit a homicide, there's a pretty good chance, better than half, that you are not going to get caught and you can kind of go about your life. So it, it does appear that potentially the American justice system has compensated for this low clearance rate by dramatically increasing the uh, punishment once people are apprehended. And uh, I work as a public defender, so maybe I can add some context to that based on what I see at, at work. Uh, but the likelihood of getting caught is is pretty low for almost any crime, whether it's shoplifting, whether it's drunk driving, whether it's trespassing, whether it's assault. There's a, a reluctance from uh, people who have been harmed by a low level crime to go forward. There's a very high bar to clear to solve any crime like that. Uh, my own guess is that if someone is uh, arrested for drunk driving once, they probably have gotten away with it maybe 40, maybe 80 times. 
because you can't have police officers everywhere at all times, at least not yet. Uh, so there's, there's whenever there is a crime, when, when someone does get caught, there's kind of like this outsized attention uh, drawn upon them because the, the system feels the need to compensate for all the missed cases that it has overlooked so far. But this would basically mean that if you, um, if you reduce the police, then um, every crime has to be punished much harsher, which uh, basically increases the variance of the system insane. Well, not necessarily. You can just shift your priorities. So, you know, the, the standard uh, argument is to ignore drug crimes and go after serious crimes only. Ignore uh, crimes that essentially only affect quality of living and go after burglaries, robberies, murder and other similarly serious crimes. When you talk about the drunk driving being something that you can get away with 40 times, then at that point, it's still technically irrational, but I can see how someone will look at that and just conclude, oh, wow, I can do this forever and never get caught. And when your rate of getting caught is that low, it makes sense that it sort of makes sense that people would not respond to the punishment because they assume not that it's a 2% chance of a very large punishment. They assume that it will never happen and therefore it doesn't matter what the punishment is. But with crimes like murder, where there is almost half of all murders get caught, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to assume it won't happen to you. Well, it's not necessarily assuming that it won't happen to you, but calculating whether the, the utility of a murder is, uh, is uh, greater than the cost of, or the greater than the risk of getting caught. And if I may slightly change the topic, there's an interesting theory I've heard on why it is the case that people don't respond to a five-year sentence with five times more caution than a one-year sentence. And uh, it's basically that people have a very high time discount in that they value time in the present more than time in the far future. This is generally true about humans. You can observe this in various ways of testing their preferences, that people prefer stuff now to stuff later, even when there isn't a sort of rational, spherical human reason to do so. But the interesting reason I heard for why criminals have this very high time discount is that if you are a violent gang member, then there's a decent chance you will die in the next 10 years. So if you're looking at a 10-year prison sentence versus a 20-year prison sentence, that's not actually worse because it's not like you are going to make it to 80 years old anyway. So they're not taking away an extra 10 years of your lifespan. So it is rational for you to not care about losing those extra 10 years. And in fact, in that environment, you may actually end up living longer if you go to prison. Yeah, because you get out of prison at 40 or whatever, and now you're too old to be a gang and you will live from 40 to 80 and you've actually done better. I had a uh, point I wanted to bring up with respect to this, and maybe this is making the um, a, a, a small uh, devil's advocate moral case in favor of uh, the lash uh, with respect to just the United States and, and our crazy prison system. But if you uh, if you look the the corrections uh, cost of prisons in the United States according to um, this article I'm looking at from eji.org is that uh, there's about eighty point seven billion a year, um, whereas the cost of policing is sixty three point two billion. 
I think it is relatively clear that the cost of lashing somebody 10 or 20 or 50 or whatever times is less than keeping them in jail for a year. If you if we took even half of that 80.7 billion and redeployed it toward policing, you'd increase its budget by two thirds. And yeah, you're not putting you know, you're not locking people up for a majority of their lives. They, you know, you get, you get the punishment, they get it done, it's over with, and then, and then they're out. I, I almost would say that at least as applied in the United States, uh, our system is significantly less ethical and moral than just beating somebody. So CRC, would you be in favor of uh, replacing parts of the incarceral uh, of the carceral state with the uh, caning? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Anything that's not uh, like, well, uh, you know, the 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 heavy duty stuff like murder and rape and all that sure lock them up um uh, i'm not in favor of uh, uh you know the, the death penalty so much because that's too final but um you know for 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 little things like shoplifting misdemeanors or or low level felonies that yeah peter this must be a, a mystifying conversation for you uh because at least here in the united states we're used to prison sentences that are decades long for relatively minor offenses yeah the uh the german prison system is focused more on reform than punishment it's it's a little bit up for discussion how much it um actually is uh focused on reforming prisoners but i think um sentences here are usually far more lenient than the united states well i suppose the other question is is it just because germans don't do crimes i i don't think so i think the um from my perspective, um, especially for like um, for murder, you uh, can get 20 years in Germany, which uh, is called uh, prison for life. But especially for uh, less important crimes, the drug uh, like drug crimes, the sentences are usually uh, one, two, three years or something, and not more. I, I hear that in the United States, because I end up in prison for a very long time if you uh, deal drugs. Yeah, you can you can get fifty years in federal prison for drugs, depending on the circumstances. Even if uh, it's it's a nonviolent uh, offense. That's for distribution, though, right? Whereas possession tends to be smaller, although still quite large compared to other countries' terms. But you can you can get stuck with intent to distribute, though. I'm just giving it as an example to to illustrate the great deal of variance between uh, the two systems. Uh, perhaps the best way to do a comparison is to look at just homicides because that's, that's consistent. Every homicide is recorded and it's may perhaps generally treated with the same level of uh, seriousness across the board. Whereas something like drug crimes is going to be heavily dependent on the culture of the country that enforces it. Yes, but I think actually um, if you assume you're in a state without the death penalty, the uh, difference between uh, the German and the American punishment is not so much different because, I mean, 20 years in prison is a really long time. If you are old, this is not so much different for, uh, from imprisoned for life. But um, with small crimes, there's a very interesting difference between the German and the American system. If you, um, in America, if you uh, do a crime very often, the sentences can add up. While in Germany, um, there is a limit. You can, I think for drug dealing, for example, you can um, not be sentenced to more than a certain amount of years 
no matter how much drugs you actually uh, sold. Well, ostensibly, there's the same thing in the, in the United States where there are ter uh, penalties, maximum penalties for each uh, crime, depending on the level. Uh, I think they just tend to be much, much higher. Uh, and they also get um, coupled with mandatory minimums. So the, the window of what judges are allowed to sentence it's, is just on average much higher than what, what you see in European countries. The intent to distribute thing that cut him up earlier is basically if you have enough drugs on you, then they can claim that they didn't catch you selling drugs, but you clearly intended to sell drugs because why else would you have so many drugs? And you can thus get a higher sentence for that. The way those penalties are set is that you can earn intent to distribute crimes for having a reasonably large stash just for personal use. Funny enough, I was in court this morning dealing with a heroin possession case. And uh, my client had 1.7 grams of, high, of heroin, but he also was carrying a, a digital scale. He could have been charged with many, many years of uh, in jail time if he was caught by the feds. But instead, the jurisdiction that I'm in basically doesn't give a shit about drug offenses. So he pleaded guilty for time served, which was four days. Wow. I googled it just now. In German, you can get up to 15 years of prison for drug dealing. But uh, I think, yeah, the... 15 years is not something that happens very often. Yeah, whereas uh, in fe the federal system, life for depending on uh, at what rung of the drug enterprise you're involved in is not unheard of. I suppose to change topic slightly is uh, another benefit, corporal punishment, is that it is more salient in people's minds, especially when it's applied publicly. Like again, reading testimonials from Singaporean people, a lot of, a lot of people have actually seen these uh, punishments dealt out. Whereas at most, uh, most people in this room, save lawyers excluded, have driven past prisons at most and seen them depicted on our media. Yeah, there's an argument that not specifically physical punishments, but public punishments create a greater disincentive effect because not for the person being punished, but if you grow up in a society with public punishment, then the punishment will be more salient than if you grow up in a society where we quietly lock people in boxes out of sight. This makes you feel less incentivized to commit crime because you are more likely to think of, wow, I could get punished in that way that I saw for it. Yeah, and it's and it's imprinted the sound of the switch and the yelling that comes with it. Like that that can leave a lot more of an imprint on you than just watching a prison drama. <laughs> Again, the this kind of comes down to how much do you value human dignity? The idea that the Western societies are founded on a dignity culture. Well, I'm prepared to make a non-moral argument against the lash which is that we currently have a system of regular incarceration and none of us on this podcast think that it works particularly well, but it does work at least a little bit in the sense that it's better than abolish the police anarchy now. Well, I'm willing to state, uh, I'm a prison abolitionist. I'm willing to state that we're, we'd be better off without the police in prisons, but that's probably for another discussion. Yeah, put that on the topic list. I, and I think most people at least, will agree that having prisons is better than abolishing the entire criminal system. I agree that I'm in a minority. Yeah, and so my argument against the lash is basically that we know the current system works a little bit, and as mentioned earlier, there doesn't seem to be a lot of data on whether corporal punishment works. Like, we have the case study of Singapore, but we don't have 
any sort of controlled trials for obvious reasons. <laughs> no one's no one's itching to start up a, a, a corporal punishment experiment in their local jurisdiction. So my argument is basically that we don't know that if corporal punishment works at all. It's not necessarily obvious it will fail, but it is plausible that it could fail in the way I described where we would all prefer to take 10 lashes than a year in prison. And that would make us more incentivized to commit crimes. And given this, we should be little C conservative and stick with the thing that works rather than the new thing, which could be very broken and cause significantly worse effects than the status quo. Okay, I think that's a good concluding point. Any other thoughts on corporal punishment? Would there also be the problem that if you have corporal punishment, you uh, it, it would be basically possible to be sentenced and then walk um, out of the courthouse immediately after being uh, beaten. Maybe it's good that if you are a criminal, you get off the streets at least for a little bit of time. Right. That's one of the benefits of incarceration. Uh, one of the stated benefits is that it's uh, the isolation effect. When you're incarcerated, you're not able to commit more crimes. So even if there is no punitive aspect to incarceration, it still benefits public safety from that aspect alone. However, it can be the case that even if that's true, incarceration is net bad because incarceration tends to ruin people's job prospects in that you have a 10-year gap on your resume and you have to check the box that says, I have committed a felony. And the result is that when you get out of prison, you will be less likely to find stable employment. And if you have already broken the law, then that means you might think, well, I guess I can't get a real job, so I will go back to doing crime for a living. And in this way, there is a plausible model where imprisoning people actually makes them more likely to commit crime once they get out. And it's not nearly uncontroversial that this is the case, but there have been analyses that show if even after accounting for the fact that you are removing someone criminally inclined from the population for a period of time, there are people who have argued that the American prison system is net negative because it makes them so much more likely to offend again once they get out. And additionally, you're putting them in a social club for career uh, career and reoffending criminals. So the, any connections they make will not be particularly pro-social and conducive towards finding stable and gainful employment after coming out. And also just the fact that prison is kind of an abusive hellhole. Like if you put a child into prison, you would expect him to come out seriously messed up. If you put an adult into prison, you should not be surprised that he comes out more inclined to commit crime. Yeah, but maybe the same is true if you uh, cane them. <laughs> right, yes, that's not... <laughs> And also a benefit of brief public punishments, caning included, is that it more clearly discharges the debt to society because it, there's a, a sense that someone who is a convict will always be a convict. Whereas the reading about the perception of people who have been caned by Singaporeans, it seems like they have a very clear perspective that this person will never do that again. More so than when you see that someone is, oh, you came, you've been in prison, you're probably on your way back is kind of the common perception here. We can't tell if that's the case because of caning or if it's just the case that Americans in general see criminals as recidivists, whereas Singaporeans see the debt as paid. And also, which is also informed by their rate of recidivism being lower, too. Yeah. 
like in Germany, for instance, they have incarceration rather than corporal punishment. But uh, can you tell us what the German attitude towards criminals is, whether regarding whether they have paid their debt? I think in general, the German prison system is more focused on reforming prisoners. And there are um, especially like for lower offenders. There are uh, some models where it is um, where even while they are in prison, it is tried to to give them a chance to build up their lives even before they are discharged. Like um, they, it is possible for them to um, to get leave from prison prison for um, uh, job interviews or something like that. Yet yeah, generally, it's it, it is uh, attempted to give them a chance to. Um, find back into a normal life how does the the popular perception like how do you guys view your uh, ex-cons i i i think it doesn't really matter that much because you are in general you are not most of the time you are not forced to disclose that you were in prison only yeah you have a suspiciously long gap on your resume <laughs> so it's it's brushed under the table then <laughs> i know no ex-convict so um i can't really tell I mean, to give a quick summary of how it's how ex-cons are treated in the United States, just by law, they're precluded from a lot of uh, professions. So if they they can't be like a certified electrician, a certified plumber, a lot of uh, places will uh, require the disclosure or or because of how public records law work, they're able to easily find the the offense and they almost never get a chance to explain what happened. So they'll just see something like assault or uh, sexual predation. Uh, even if it gets dismissed and you have no conviction, it still can show up in your record. The job market being as it is, there's just like basically no reason for people to take a chance if they have a similar, similarly situated candidate that doesn't have that baggage. So it, once you have a criminal record, it becomes very difficult to find good work and very difficult to find steady work. And you tend to kind of find yourself on the lower rung of society in many, in many ways. I think in Germany, it, generally it's uh, general, it's hard to find out whether some person has been convicted. Some employers like the state can ask people for a certificate that they have never been convicted, but this is only uh, for jobs when it can be reasoned that it might actually be important. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, a hot button topic for once. We're going to be talking about the recent deplatforming of 8chan by Cloudflare. So Cloudflare is a network provider that is uh, in the business of uh, providing protection against denial of uh, service, distributed denial of service attacks, DDoS, in other words. The most recent uh, instance, it appears that the perpetrator of the mass shooting in El Paso, Texas was a heavy 8chan user and appeared to have announced their... uh, acts ahead of time on HN and appears to have been heavily inspired by HN. And as a response, Cloudflare was previously the provider for this uh, website and have since uh, kicked them off. What I appreciate, I, I have two minds about this. I'll start with the, the good thing. What I appreciate about Cloudflare is that specifically Matthew Prince, which I believe is the CEO, is that they acknowledge the last time they did this about two years ago was when they kicked off the Daily Stormer, which is a, a Nazi site. Is it? Yes, it is openly neo-Nazi. All right. So they kicked off an openly neo-Nazi site and they acknowledged that it caused a brief interruption in the site's operations, but they quickly came back online with a competitor. And at one point they say when... When they kick off HN, they've solved their own problems, but 
they haven't solved the internet's problem and that HN will inevitably find another provider. So they acknowledge that this is kind of almost pointless. And further down, they also acknowledge that this is arbitrary on their end. And Matthew Prince even says that he's uncomfortable with uh, being the arbitrator of who gets to be online as a, as a private company that has no accountability to the general public. So I appreciate the honesty. So one thing I want to highlight is that two years ago when they kicked the Daily Stormer off, the blog post that they did on it opened with basically, I did this on a whim. One day I woke up and I decided I want them off the internet. And he immediately goes into, no one should have this power. And he he has this interesting attitude where he doesn't say that what he did was wrong, but he reiterates that no one should have this power. And in the recent post on 8chan, they've kind of backed off this attitude. He says that he is incredibly uncomfortable about playing the role of content arbiter and does not plan to exercise it often, which is better than if he said, yeah, I'm going to do this all the time. But he has notably walked back from his original position of no one should have this power. And the post feels much more celebratory of fuck 8chan than two years ago they were celebrating on fuck Stormfront. They, there was basically no celebration tone to the original post. And so I think it is good that they are not being more gloating about this, but I find it distressing that they seem to have moved their position. That's not that's not the same uh, interpretation that I have of the post, but because at the at the very end, the Matthew Prince says, what's hard is defining the policy that we can enforce transparently and consistently going forward. So he and there's other other language towards the same effect that they acknowledge that this is rather arbitrary and on a whim, not exactly that specific word, but uh, they don't really have consistent rules that they can point to and say this is bad. It, it, it tends to be kind of whatever gains the most prominence like Daily Stormer and HN gets the whack. Interestingly, just last year, 2018, as far as I can tell, they are still providing uh, DDoS protection to several international terrorist organizations, jihadist and otherwise. It seems like they don't really discriminate on that end. Among other things, Prince, same guy who wrote the post you just read, says, a website is speech. It is not a bomb. We do not believe that investigating the speech that flows through our network is appropriate. In fact, we think doing so would be creepy. So it's very interesting how this is turned around so quickly. So regarding the tone difference between these two events, one thing that really strikes me is on the 8chan post, they seem to be quite open about the fact that taking 8chan down is a good thing. Like to the extent that it works and 8chan does not just trivially bounce back, they seem quite happy about it. Whereas with the original Stormfront post, it's not so much, yes, I have done a good service for the internet. He's very upfront about the fact that he just woke up one day and wanted them gone rather than that he wanted to fight hate online. But uh, isn't like, the? I think the interesting question is what is the difference between the Daily Storm and HN. From my perspective, while the Daily Stormer is a, a incredibly disgusting neo-Nazi site, it basically uh, plays no role in actual American politics or something. While um, HN has been like um, a site that incubates some, well, fairly fairly influential movements like the Gamergate movement or this 
Q and Anon um, conspiracy stuff, and now you have like uh, more and more mass shooters uh, promoting their uh, manifestos on 8chan in, in some way. This is much more something that influences uh, real people's life than an annoying neo-Nazi website. So, point of order, QAnon and Gamergate are 4chan, which is a different but related thing from 8chan. 8chan is a similar community to 4chan, and I'm sure there are very many people who use either website that would object to that, but they are much more similar to each other than they are to most other random websites on the internet. So, And 8chan functions more like Reddit with no moderation whatsoever. Like uh, there's sub communities. Some of them are even not that toxic. I haven't gone on there very much. I've been directed to it while reading about scandals on HN, basically. I just Googled uh, notable, notable boards of HN and it said that uh, QAnon would post on HN now. It's sadly, sadly, HN is now gone. So we can not look up how bad it actually is. Yeah, as of August 8th, it's still down. Yeah, so QAnon started on 4chan and moved to 8chan. Gamergate was before 8chan even existed. Minor pedantry. I mean, and, and the, both of those movements are vibrant on Twitter. It's not like you they, can, they banned QAnon uh, theorizing from Twitter. I find it interesting that the Cloudflare account is taking the hate on the internet approach because 8chan has an interesting relationship with child pornography. Cloudflare is, does not seem to be addressing that at all. They're just talking about that 8chan is a place where hateful people go. Even if they could keep 8chan off the internet entirely, 8chan is just an unmoderated forum. I don't think the internet is especially lacking for unmoderated forums. And so it's not clear that taking 8chan off the internet entirely will result in these hateful people not being so hateful and not having hateful conversations with each other. Like, if his goal was to do something about child pornography, then he might have a case. People talking on the internet is very hard to stop. And, and it's a question of just how much of a contribution is talking on the internet to real-life terrorist action or, and real-life political action. Well, I was going to say, if QAnon is guilty of anything, it's that they care too much about children. It's <laughs> one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm being flippant, but it, it's kind of hard to discern exactly what counts as bad speech. It, it tends to be, it tends to happen in waves. Uh, whatever, uh, whoever the subject of two minutes of hate from Twitter is, uh, is the pariah du jour. That's who gets deplatformed. It's not necessarily who is the most effective. It's just, oh, this is on the news. Exactly. There is no one sitting down at Cloudflare talking about, well, who are the most, most toxic people we're providing services to? Let's now let's, let's prune the bottom 10%. This was very much, uh, there was a media storm about HN. This trickled through to the people at Cloudflare and they wanted to get points or potentially avoid criticism by lopping off a specific member that was proving problematic to them. And this is tangential, but it just reminded me of Amnesty International now issued a travel warning for people that are going to the United States due to the supposed high rate of mass shootings that is so severe that it that it impacts uh, human rights. And I couldn't help but just roll my eyes at that. But that's kind of like a, a separate issue. Well, I think that's kind of actually somewhat similar, though. Amnesty International, it's for Amnesty International's benefit more than anything. 
because they're signaling about a problem that is salient in their minds and from their perspective. But, but again, lightning strikes are more of a problem than mass shootings. Yeah. <laughs> no, I probably shouldn't say that. Don't, don't quote me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Also like uh, the online dating website okcupid also posted saying something like if you want to be my lover then you would support common sense gun control uh i don't know what being an online dating platform has to do with gun rights policy but that's that's also kind of a separate uh discussion but it seems like everyone uh there's it's too it's too delicious to avoid jumping on the soapbox and and claiming your platform or claiming your position on this on this matter i just want to provide a slightly more charitable, and I mean slightly more charitable take on that, which is that it's not necessarily that they are doing some signaling thing for earning social credit. It's entirely possible that what's happening here is just someone at these companies has a political opinion and they've grabbed the biggest megaphone they can find for their political shitposting. And I, I should also clarify, Cloudflare in contrast to OKCupid or Amnesty International or anyone else, does have a direct impact on whether these websites are up. So there is a distinction in that realm. I mean, I think that in another in another aspect of this, and Cloudflare is a private company, of course, and uh, but um, at some point, uh, you, you start to have to look at these things as utilities. You wouldn't necessarily say, oh, you're a hateful person, no water for you. Now we're going to say, the, the, since the internet is the way culture and society and every and basically everybody communicates you can't talk to people you're just too you're just too disgusting we, we don't want to talk to you I, I i have a problem with that i have a problem with that ethically and um, morally uh if not legal so this is even more so this is more like this isn't even so much hateful person this is this is more like cutting off the the water and the phone lines to the coffee shop that hosts uh that new nazis attack yeah yeah it, it's, it's not it's, even attacking the people themselves it's just going after the place where they congregate but i mean i can i can understand that our private company says that they don't want to support the community that congregates on 8chan anymore i mean i as i said i can't tell how bad 8chan was exactly but um no the, it can be terrible and it was terrible to be perfectly honest oh yeah 8chan was a cesspit like even if you don't want to talk about sort of toxic hateful stuff like it was the armpit of the internet. Yeah. And I guess I'm not saying that I'm sad that HN is gone because I'm not. That doesn't, it's not that. Anybody who is seriously into um, defending the First Amendment faces this almost daily, which is you have to defend the most disgusting people to actually defend the principle. There, but for the grace of God, go on. <laughs> well, let's clarify it. We're not talking about the First Amendment. We're talking about the principle of free speech. Well, right. Yeah, that's true. You're right. Yes, I, I misspoke. So I, I'm also in support of Cloudflare doing whatever they want with their platform. I don't think it's realistic to expect uh, private actors to do business with people they, they truly abhor. Although we, we are... Well, this is where my this is where I I take off my libertarian coat because I think uh, anti discrimination. Right, I was uh, going to talk about. Legacy. I was going to say something about <laughs> <Sorry>. discrimination. <laughs> so that that's a separate. Um, I, I don't think uh, we should get into that topic specifically. Uh, the concern here that I have isn't necessarily what Cloudflare does on this particular instance with this particular website, but more the the ethos and the general strategy of this website is bad and or dangerous. Therefore, the way to respond to it is by censoring it. 
and it doesn't need to involve a government agency censoring it. It's more the we're so highly dependent on the backbone of the internet and Cloudflare is almost uh, essential for any website, any prominent website for it to exist, given how vulnerable it would be otherwise to, to an attack. So it's more the, the strategy and ethos behind the, the deplatforming that I have a problem with uh, on a variety of fronts. One is if, as CRC said, if we compare it to something like a utility, I want to ask people at what point is it okay to cut off, I don't know, someone's electricity bill, electricity access or their water access or their sewage access if you don't like what is happening at the place. It seems like a petty and roundabout way of addressing the the root problem, which is what this doesn't do. It doesn't get rid of the hateful content and makes it potentially a little less convenient for it to to congregate around, but it doesn't get rid of it. Or even worse, uh, first, I, I'll, I'll address your, your point there of at what point would you cut off somebody's utilities how, for how bad they are? I think the answer there is to the point where you would incarcerate them or charge them with a criminal offense. Okay. You have to be, do something that bad. But at that point, you wouldn't have to f- mess with their utilities. To me, the, the desire to mess with people's access to utilities and basic resources and things that are generally doled out non-discriminat- uh, non-discriminatorily, such as Cloudflare, which deals with terrorists because they're non-discriminatory, even to, even to an extent where they some places that go past breaking laws. Well, in my opinion, is the problem is that the, through the internet, uh, people are able to a, a develop much more bizarre um, ways of speech than ever before. Like um, the, the American uh, version of free speech is extremely lenient. But in my opinion, it turns out that through the internet, you can... Um, you can create even more extreme ways of speech that have not existed before. I seriously take issue with that. I don't like that framing either. <laughs> Why? Well, because, I mean, you, you can go back to the JFK conspiracy theories uh, and how convoluted it was. You can also just go back to the, the Nazi party. You didn't need the internet for it to be, uh, to enable it and for it to gain widespread uh, support and adherence. Yeah, Nazi LARPers aren't doing anything unique. Problem of the, with the Nazi party is not that they um, performed extremely racist speech. The problem with the Nazi party is that they actually murdered millions of people. Right, but, you, but you're talking about speech. You're talking about ideas. And nothing that is present nowadays strikes me as particularly unusual within the grand scheme of history. If you read Slash Paul or if you read the, uh, like the bizarrest um, intel forums or, I mean, there are... Um, there are ex- cults uh, about people like uh, Christian, who is basically like um, an autistic person who has uh, problems in his life and hundreds of people follow everything he does. Who is this? Christian. He's like the... Um, He's internet famous in the sense that people like to poke fun at him for being weird. Yes. Details not especially important. You're making the case that the internet provides a, a qualitatively different pressure cooker for ideologies than in-person speech. Yes, it's um, it's much faster and I think it, it's much more um, day-to-day actual or um, like th- this again makes it faster. Like... Um, just go watch crazy conspiracy videos on YouTube and how how fast different people uh, can influence each other into uh, believing even more bizarre um, conspiracy theories. So it's quantitative then. It's just regular people being weird, but more so. 
I'm, I think it's both. It's it's uh, as a first step, it's quantitative, quantitative, but um, then you get like the whole slash Paul movement or something. I think it also develops a different quality where you you really get an echo chamber where you develop your own language where you develop your own um, worldview that is um, completely removed from uh, anything else. So if the internet nowadays becomes responsible for a crusade to the Middle East that is composed entirely of children, then I think you would have a point uh, on that front. But you just need to go back through history to find all sorts of absurd and bizarre movements that have flourished without without the internet enabling it. That doesn't mean that you're incorrect, but I... I, I take I take issue. I'm not convinced that the internet necessarily poses a novel uh, challenge on that front. Yeah. Also, uh, uh, last weekend I went to a cabin for a friend's uh, birthday with her and her friends, which are all social justice activists and and graduates of programs that end with studies. They all came out of the pressure cooker of the academy, and they were very weird people with very weird ideas as well. Stuff that is uh could describe as surprising and stuff that you would not think people would arrive to under normal circumstance i don't think there's anything particularly special about the internet more i think it's only a quantitative difference merely because the rate that ideas can be bounced around is a lot faster i mean i mean maybe maybe we're both right and you can view this quantitatively or qualitatively but i I would also like to say that social justice activists too are uh, shaped by uh, the way uh, the movement can spread through the internet. Like uh, many social justice people get their views from Twitter, which is maybe not as bad as HN, but yes, Twitter Delinda, yes, I can get behind that. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, Twitter, Twitter also gives uh, pretty bizarre people a platform where they can um, make themselves even more bizarre in no time okay so on those grounds do you think twitter should also be canceled i don't think twitter should be canceled but in general i think um if you if you read uh cloudflare's decision to uh ban or to to close hn as taking a little bit responsible what happens on their platform i would definitely say that twitter maybe should also start to take more responsibility for their platform so I want to bring up my view on this, which uh, I always enjoy these conversations because I am only vaguely libertarian, but this is some place that for some reason, libertarians like to say that we need to do something about this with the state control. And I get to pull out my bigger libertarian than thou card and say, nah, this is, this is great. Anarcho-capitalism working as intended. Like, I think this is I think this is fine. The reason Cloudflare was able to pull 8chan is because 8chan is kind of unpopular and they're not well liked. If Cloudflare started pulling like random big name Republicans, then the result is that Cloudflare would lose a lot of business and that someone would start another hosting site in order to grab up all of that Republican business. It's not like Cloudflare will ever be able to destroy free speech. They are slightly reducing free speech, but 
the amount that they are able to do so is limited by the extent to which they are creating an inefficient market. And I'm kind of okay with a system where really obnoxious people who don't have a lot of market power get kicked out of the market. <laughs> well, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little pedantic and attack a couple of points in there. Um, first, there's a strong difference between libertarian with a capital or lowercase L and civil libertarian uh civil libertarians who were strongly in favor of free speech generally and a bunch of other things don't necessarily ascribe to the same government hands-off uh view that standard libertarians do uh so with that with that caveat i think that uh most of what you said would be in i i could agree with but um not not that part <laughs> yeah i mean i agree with the characterization that this is kind of like a snow crash scenario where it's everything is up to the whims of whatever uh, uh large private corporation is in is in power within that area yeah and the i suppose like i break from that in that we don't live in an anarcho-capitalist environment there's no easy way for there's no easy way for HN to find a different DDoS protection service. They haven't. They're still down. Yeah. And like I said, the reason for that is that HN is especially unpopular. And so no one is very eager to give service to HN. But if there were a bunch of websites like HN that were all getting kicked off Cloudflare, then that would represent a larger opportunity. Someone would have more profit motive to create the unpopular hosting company and give them DDoS production. And then their data data center service shuts them down. First, they came for HN and I said nothing. <laughs> for well, so I, yeah, that's, that's why I said yeah, I want to dare, but for the grace of God, go I. Like I, yeah, I they, can see that this progressing to taking down Reddit or even the moat. Like we've got weirdos on there. I disagree with the idea that corporations have total control. Like corporations have the amount of control that is afforded to them by how much surplus budget they have. They can they can only ban people on a random whim to the extent that it will make them unprofitable. I guess so, um, to your point that this was able to be done to HN because they were unpopular. You know, just as a thought experiment, imagine what would happen if the internet had been invented in um, the late 1700s. Would um, slave abolitionists have been banned because they were tremendously unpopular until they until their um, uh, until they got grounds uh, a, a um, you know, traction or or in the early 1900s HN are not abolitionists <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for the purpose of the thought experiment yes they're both people who are unpopular quite probably like abolitionists were banned from a lot of newspapers and that does not seem to have stopped them from winning and so the fact that the internet would not have behaved any differently from newspapers and that does not seem to be a problem so this is where we talk about the the curve what is it? The curve of morality leans. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Right, something like that. So, you know, there's always a possibility that HN is the vanguard of, uh, of justice and we're the. <laughs> okay. I couldn't even finish that sentence, but. <laughs> no, this is, this is the, this is the scoundrel, which uh, I feel the need to defend at this point. Okay. Anything else about Cloudflare and free speech? <laughs> I suppose the the other issue is the the accelerant effect of persecuting people, essentially, in that uh, wielding your powers unfairly and 
inconsistently to target enemies makes them more likely to be worse enemies and worse behaved enemies. Similarly, you you do not mod you do not moderate jihad by bombing them. Right, you're making a you're making a civil society argument. But I think if um I think actually that um banning or closing 8chan um, sets the, the people there back in their organization because now they probably need to create a new image board which then needs to become so infamous that it gets the same user base again. So I don't think it makes those hateful people stronger. It really um, throws stones in their way. Yeah, exactly. You, 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 threw, you, stoned, you stoned them and they walked away to fight another day and continue on being the same thing that they were only now feeling persecuted. Yeah, it seems to me, it seems trivial to create another platform in the grand scheme of things. Like it's not, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's not, it doesn't seem to be many barriers in place. I mean, the problem is not creating the platform. The problem is uh, making the platform so famous and so big that it actually becomes relevant. There are a well, million. Yeah. I mean, that too is trivial. Other image boards, but they aren't HN because not many people go there. You've got two two different things. If you if you're really trying to block people tr uh, organizing for whatever, um, that's going to be like you said, pretty much impossible because any little site could have a couple hundred people that are organizing terror attacks or whatever. And there's no reason why that site would have any uh, would attract any attention until something happened. And even China's can't do it. Their content filters are are bypassable, even using just uh, code speech. People find a way. And so I guess and, uh, one one of the other arguments in favor of not banning them would be that uh, by not banning them, everybody can see what's going on. And once you ban them, they have to go underground. And so they will. And so then it's all hidden. And if you, I mean, maybe that's a net, maybe that's a net benefit in some ways, but I think it's a, it's a negative in others. Yeah. At that point, I think it becomes an empirical question of whether burying something makes it more or less dangerous. There's the effect of obscurity, but there's also the effect of making it potentially more attractive to the type of person that would be drawn to it. Streisand. Yep. Also, McCarthy made communism cool. Yeah. So if we can circle back to Cloudflare, I think they are being a little dishonest, and I want to highlight something. From the original uh, 2017 post on why they terminated the Daily Stormer, they mentioned that... Uh, Somewhere on their website, they brag about how they refuse to bow to government requests. And one of the some of the things they list are like, we've never turned over SSL keys to customers or anything. And one of them is Cloudflare has never terminated a customer or con taken down content due to political pressure. And in the 2017 article, they talk about how they're going to have to think long and hard about whether they have the right to keep this point up, because they certainly will have a harder time arguing that it's true now that they've been Stormfront. The result of that is that they never updated, never changed, never commented on it, and they still to this day say that they have never terminated a customer or taken down content due to political pressure. It seems somewhat dishonest for them to not even do a follow-up post to the effect of, yes, we've decided we're leaving it up for this reasons. And now that 8chan has been taken down, which was clearly a response to the specific uh, political event of the shooting, 
it seems even more improbable that they should be allowed to keep that up. But in their recent post where they took down 8chan, they don't even acknowledge that. They're just okay with leaving it up now. Yeah, I think that uh, in, in the what you just described, it it makes some sense to me that they were able to keep it up um, with a straight face after Daily uh, the Storm or whatever, uh, and, and because his stated reason was I woke up one day and felt like gotten getting rid of it. That's not political pressure. That's you know arbitrary and capricious whims. Uh, in, in this case. I think you're 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 spot on. It's a lot more difficult for them to continue to claim that with a straight face. For me, it all comes back to the question: like, um, how how bizarre can speech be until it is no longer longer accept uh, ex acceptable? Because still, I would say I I find it completely reasonable that Cloudflare can say, okay, we ex accept a lot of really 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 weird shit, but. 8chan is getting so um, so much traffic and becomes even becomes more bizarre and more bizarre every day, and we don't want it anymore. I find this I find this com completely reasonable. I mean, yeah, I suppose if I were running Cloudflare, I wouldn't want to host 8chan either. I would. You would. <laughs> you would. Yeah, I would, I would not be, enjoy doing it. I would just be making a stand because I adhere to the principle of free speech to an extremist degree. Reminds me of Reddit. Reddit. Uh, is or was uh, giving shelter to um, many, many very bizarre um, communities like all those red pill forums or um, like uh, several Gamergate or Paul forums. Um, and I think they they have quarantined most of the um, really, really um, extremely hard reactionary, I guess you could say. Well, it, it's not even that. They had like fat people hate and... I think Coontown was another one. They had like pretty gross subreddits that uh, couldn't survive once it was owned by Condé Nast. Some of the subreddits banned were kind of apolitical people being bad in the sense of like there's fat people hate, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's just people being very mean to various pictures of fat people. And then there's things that you could consider right-wing aligned, but not explicitly right-wing, like Coontown, which is basically r slash racism. Then you have explicitly political subs, which were banned mostly for being far right. There are some left-wing subs that got banned, but it's if you sort of do a count, it skews right-wing. And I'm not going to comment on what that signifies. And you can kind of trace the... You can also trace the progression too starting with the scoundrelliest of the scoundrels like coontown and now the admittedly quite terrible subreddit of promoting the president of the united states is now quarantine but i mean i can i can understand too that for reddit that reddit thinks um okay maybe we are get, giving shelter to some communities which are well to put it mildly very annoying and shocking And they, they want to combat that because Reddit is based on the fact that everyone can open their own forum about anything. This means that after a while you will get some forums that are quite uh, problematic or annoying. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good thing though. Yeah, but I mean, how, how annoying is too annoying? Uh, you can use the, the internet to uh, pile hate uh, onto random people because they are fat. Or you, I think, I think what we, what we didn't uh, mention, there were also some incel uh, 
subreddits that got banned or at least quarantined. Those uh, subreddits tend to be really, really bizarre echo chambers where people uh, tell uh, tell themselves um, the weirdest stories about um, everything. I mean, for what it's worth, I I definitely don't envy the platform's position because once they start moderating, they have to twist themselves into... They have to keep moderating. They twist themselves into contortions to to come up with a coherent and fair uh, policy. I mean, the the prominent example most recently was YouTube and uh, Crowdergate, how they said it was okay, but then they reversed their position once it was deemed too unpopular. And then... Once they start getting into moderating quote unquote Nazi content, they took down a bunch of historical videos that were posted obviously for educational purposes. So you have to kind of make these weird distinctions and it's a never ending battle. It's not just that you have to make the distinctions, but there's also the problem that once you moderate, then you have given people an incentive to pressure you to moderate in different ways. And I think Crowdergate is a perfect example of that, where YouTube had their attention to drawn to something. They said, no, this is okay. And then people yelled at them until they changed their mind. Crowdergate is, there's a guy called Steven Crowder, who is a right-wing affiliated YouTuber. A journalist made a supercut of all the times that Crowder referred to this journalist as gay, usually with unflattering terms like fairy or twink or whatever. And he just posted it with very little comment. And then there was a discussion of whether Crowder should be banned. YouTube initially said no. People yelled at them for saying no. They then banned him. Wait, hold on just a second. That is not accurate. They didn't ban Crowder. What they did was... uh, Yes, sorry. They demonetized him. They demonetized his videos, which which is kind of inconsequential in the grand scheme of things because most of his financial support comes from uh, merchandise and uh, direct Patreons. So it was kind of a performative response by saying, we agree with you, this is bad, so we're going to demonetize. Well, it's not necessarily... If if he makes 20% of his money off ads, it's not killing his business, but that's not just nothing. He's going to notice True, that. True, but it, he definitely, the, the whole Crowdergate saga definitely increased his profile. And based on what his what he says, he gained a significant amount of followers as a result. So the, the result is that, the end result, I think, is that YouTube made everyone unhappy. Carlos Maza, the gay Vox uh, journalist, was definitely unhappy because they didn't outright delete Crowder's uh, videos. Crowder was very unhappy because they demonetized him, even though financially, I would assume that he definitely uh, gained as a result. And so no one was was satisfied with the re- resolution. So it seems like we're stuck at an unstable equilibrium where platforms that seem like they naturally should be acting as neutral platforms or neutral forums or whatever you want to call them are acting as publishers instead, which are supposed to be discretionary and be responsible for everything they have on there. Sir, I I know what you're trying to do, but I would caution you about using those terms because you're wading into a a legal swamp. Oh, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I was surrounded by lawyers. I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Can you rephrase it without using platform or publisher? Because that has speci- that has specific legal connotations, and you're free to make that argument. But I'm just kind of giving you a warning that I probably don't know entirely what all that means. So you're right. I'm just talking speaking colloquially. A, a, a website that seems naturally suited to being content neutral, opening the Pandora's box of acting content discretionary and assuming responsibility for all of the content on it. 
specifically for sites where it is like a search engine. Is a search engine responsible for all of the searches made on it and for all of the sites it links to? Right. Like, to me, that seems crazy making to accept that possibility that you should be responsible for something someone finds on Google. But it seems like that's the direction they're moving toward. And it, that's already the case on YouTube, as YouTube is expected to be responsible for every uh, video hosted on YouTube, which is pretty much a logistical impossibility, hence all of their algorithmic fuckery. It's worth noting that that already is legally the case on Google, in that Google can be legally ordered to not show results. And if you end up looking for, for instance, uh, streams of copyrighted TV shows on Google, then you will see a lot of notices to the effect of Google has been forced to not show results relating to law number 625, whatever, click this for more details. And so Google is already, to some extent, being held responsible for what you can find on their searches, just not in this sort of socially responsible sense. So what would be interesting is to see what Cloudflare's next deplatforming would be and whether they themselves will find themselves in uh, this contortion of trying to justify after the fact why they carried out specific act yeah their problem is now that now that they've done it once um or well twice it becomes a whole lot easier for people to say well let's just put a bunch of pressure on them i think at uh, at least for reddit i would say we generally see a pattern where you basically are allowed to try to make a, a extremely bizarre community on reddit but when it grows enough so that um many people can be annoyed uh, by it, maybe then Reddit will quarantine or ban you. So the official position of Reddit is that they ban the subs for basically if there are too many instances of users on that particular subreddit breaking the rules of Reddit, which are things like no death threats, uh, no doxing, a couple other things that I can't remember. If there are too many instances of users on the Reddit breaking the rules. Their official policy is that that's what results in bans. But that's obviously not applied universally because there are lots of Reddits where there have been death threats and have not gotten banned. And it's not like there's an entirely objective criteria of this many death threats earns you a ban. I think it's uh, too many for the moderators to keep consistently under wraps. I think is that's their standard. Like if it's noticeable, it's the thing. Because there's always like a lizard's man's constant of death threats floating around in the internet background radiation. You can never get away from them. <laughs> so I think the realist answer is that whether a subreddit gets banned has at least something to do with how many people are publicly annoyed about the subreddit. Right. I mean, there's the explicit reasons stated, but I'm, I'm suspicious of them. Did you hear, by the way, that the Chapo Trap House uh, subreddit is now quarantined? Wait, that happened? Yep. Yep. Oh, shit. Ostensibly for the same reason, but I think part of it is like, oh, we got to be fair. Yeah, there were, after the Donald Trump subreddit got banned, there were a lot of people complaining specifically about the Chapo subreddit as unbanned because it contained some number of death threats and it was also a prominent left-wing sub, so it makes a good point of comparison. And, of course, that puts Reddit in a terrible spot where 
it's possible that they did it just in order to shut people up about you banned the right wing site, but not the left wing site. But it's also possible that they just hadn't gotten around to banning Chapo yet. And now they can't ban Chapo without it looking like they're only doing it to appease the complainers. For mystified people who are not interested in listening to Reddit meta commentary, uh, Chapo Trap House is a left wing site and that is trolly in a nature similar to 4chan or pole sort of it's like left it's like left wing pole well, sort no, of Chapa trap house is a extremely popular leftist podcast right well i'm talking about their subreddit their subreddit a lot of them just like completely hate the podcast actually <laughs> okay i didn't know that so yeah 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 it's not it's not really affiliated with the podcast and the hosts hate the hate that sub as well you know, leftist for circular firing squads. These things happen. Well, you know, kind of like the uh, the Sam Harris subreddit actually hates Sam Harris. So. <laughs> don't talk about that place. I'm so sad about that one. <laughs> I'll have to ask about that later because I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Uh, we've been talking for more than two and a half hours. So any parting thoughts? Okay. So thank you all for doing this. Thank you for hosting us. Yeah. Thank you for coming aboard, Peter. I am... I really hope we didn't scare you away with our libertarian dogpiling. No, no, it's 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 great fun. Yeah, I think the podcast is better better with you participating. I hope my German accent isn't too bad. No, you're you're much clearer than uh, let's say civilized our friends. We need to get you both on here. <laughs> it took me about two hours to realize that you were saying shelter and not shout out, but otherwise it's good. <laughs> so this is the, this is the unifying factor: dogpiling on the French. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so goodbye.